our look at these churches in Asia Minor. We, of course, building off of developing ideas uh, based on the sermon series that we did uh, for several weeks where we looked at what is a church, what does a church do, and now Revelation 2 and 3 supplies us with some case studies, as it were, of churches in the first century. And I've already forgotten kids. It's time for the kids to head off to Children's Bible Hour uh, with Mr. Lou. They're already there? Well, let's sing anyway. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I appreciated the song Russ led, and I appreciate this that song as well. Because Jesus loves his church. He says some things that they're hard. They are words that were perhaps unpopular, but he said them because he loves his church. He said them because we are created from the dust by our God in his image. And therefore, because God loves us so much, he will tell us the truth. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says, these are the words of Jesus, to, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Help us, Lord God, this morning to see clearly the truth of your word, the correction that it brings, the promises that it provides. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Some things cast long shadows. And so we, maybe we live in the shadow of our past. It's hard to get away from it. Maybe we live in the shadow of our parents. Big shoes to fill. Maybe the shadow of a sibling. Maybe we live in the shadow of fear. Again, lots of things can cast big shadows. And we may live in the shadow of those particular things. But what if... You lived in the shadow of Satan's throne. What if you lived under the shadow of Satan's throne? The church in Pergamum lived under that shadow. Here is a a first century church living under the shadow of Satan's throne, and it apparently took a toll. They lived, moved, and had their being in the devil's domain. The devil... And his throne were where the devil lived. Why does Jesus call it? Why does Jesus call Pergamum Satan's throne? Or where Satan lives? Well, historically, we could talk about how the, the city of Pergamum itself, it was, a, it was a royal city. Capital of the Seleucid Empire at one time. In fact, it was called the greatest city in Asia Minor. It boasted a library of 200,000 parchment scrolls. It was very impressive as a city historically. But it was also an impressive religious center. When Jesus calls this Satan's throne, where Satan dwells, Pergamum, as a religious center, was a location that had a lot of idolatry. The altar to Zeus was there. There was a temple to Athena. In fact, what's fascinating about the altar to Zeus is the way it was constructed. It was kind of shaped like a giant throne, complete even with what looked like armrests, as it were. Satan's throne. Smoke from the sacrifices would go up from there all day long in Pergamum. This was also a city where they worshipped Asclepius, Soter, that is to say Savior. Asclepius was the god of healing, the god of medicine. His symbol was a, a staff with a snake wrapped around it, and even to today, that symbol can be seen at certain hospitals. I'm not necessarily saying that there's a one-to-one correlation, but if you want to know what the symbol looked like, some hospitals still carry it. Asclepius, the god of healing, was worshipped here. Pergamum was the first city to have a temple dedicated to Caesar. They were rabid promoters of emperor worship. A lot of the emperors in that time were They looked at themselves as as gods. They deified themselves or their predecessors. All of this idolatry, it's no wonder Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's where Satan's throne is. Because here's the thing, what is in back of an idol? What is it that's behind an idol, a false god? It's demonic activity. It's even Satan himself in some instances. So Jesus here is pulling back the veil 
of the physical realm, as it were, so that we can see clearly what's going on in Pergamum. That's a spiritual thing. It's where Satan's throne is. It's where Satan dwells. It's where he lives. Where you live, that's where the devil lives. It's his domain. And yet, Jesus has a church, has a message to this church. A message to this body of believers in him. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. You may already be ahead of me and You've made the connection, good Bible student that you are, to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, where it says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the nature of the Word. And so here is the Word of God incarnate, talking about how He's got the sharp two-edged sword, Something he's already mentioned earlier back in chapter 1 as part of the vision that John saw back in 1 verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And that may be the connection here. That the, the sword here at once points to two things. One, the saving power of the Word of God. But also, on the other hand, the power that God's Word has for judgment. The original language had a couple of different words for sword. You may think about uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about how the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The sword there is actually a word that means kind of like a, a short sword, like a dagger. It's intended for short uh, distances, close combat, the machaira. That is not the word Jesus uses here. Romphia. This was the big, large, broad sword that would have been used by the conqueror. That's the Lord Jesus, the warrior king, coming to, well, he says, war against them in verse 16. That's, that's the picture of Jesus here. I don't know what that does to your concept, your idea of Jesus. But He is the warrior king. He is the one who fights on behalf of His church. And God forbid that His church, that He have ought against His church. And yet that's what is the case with Pergamum, and we'll get there in a moment. But first, Jesus knows, as our Creator, He knows how to talk to us. And he knows that sometimes the bitter medicine goes down with a little bit of honey beforehand. And so he says, I know. I know. We've talked about that, how Jesus knows. He's, he's the one who sees everything. He stands in the midst of his churches. He's right there with them. But he says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know where you live. I know that Pergamum is... The throne of Satan. Again, probably talking about the altar of Zeus. Could be. If nothing else, it's a city rife with idols and false gods. Yeah, I know where you live. And I know who's behind all that. It's the devil. How hard would it have been to live where the very throne of the devil was? It would have been hard. 
But Jesus also says, I, I know also your faithfulness. Yet you hold fast my name. You don't turn loose of it. Even in the heat of persecution. Persecution that cost at least one faithful Christian his life. Antipas, you did not deny my faith. Not just the faith, but this is Jesus talking and it's your faith in me. You didn't deny that. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, the word there for witness can also be translated as martyr. I think that's probably the case. There's actually an early Christian tradition that comes to us by way of Tertullian, one of the early church writers. Tertullian says that Antipas, the tradition was, he was slow roasted to death. You signed up for this, Christian? You know, the 10 days of tribulation that was coming that we read about with Smyrna last week, whew, that was, that's tough. But if this tradition is true, and Antipas was slow roasted to death. But Jesus knows. Jesus saw all of that. Where were you when Antipas was being martyred, Jesus? He was right there with him. You didn't deny your faith in me. It's designed to be an encouragement. Both of these. I know. I know. Jesus is saying. I know all about this because I am living with you. And, and maybe, brother, sister, maybe it's your home. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's wherever you go. Maybe it's even living right where you live. It feels like this is where the devil is. people all around you. Maybe it's persecution of some sort. Maybe it's, maybe it's temptation. Tempting you to even deny your faith in the Lord to some degree. Jesus says, I know. Does He know that you hold fast, brother, sister? Does He know your faithfulness today? I know all those things, Jesus says, but um, I have a few things against you. And here's the bitter pill to swallow. By the way, this is not an unfamiliar formula. We saw this back in verse 4 with Ephesus, the, the Ephesian enigma, when we talked about that. Got some things against you. It's why the title of this series is God versus Church. He's got something, he's got a few things against the church there in Pergamum. These saints are doing some things right, but you've got to improve on some things. He says, I... I know how you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Teaching of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam. What in the world is that? Well, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Where, what, what, what is this? This actually harkens back to the book of Numbers. Chapters 22 to 24 is where Balak summons Balaam to come and to prophesy a curse against the sons of Israel. And Balaam, he's uh, reluctant at first, but he says, you know what? I'll come and do that. He tries to at least appear, uh, word of the day, pious, somewhat devout, asking God, eh, should I do this or not? God says, oh yeah, sure, go ahead. Puts an angel in front of him on his way, and that's where you have 
Balaam's conversation with his donkey and all that. And then when Balaam does show up, he doesn't curse the people of Israel. He blesses them repeatedly. Balak's pulling his hair out like, I brought you down here to curse them and all you're doing is blessing them. But it's chapter 25 of Numbers where the people of Midian go down and and some of the people of Israel intermarry with the Midianites, something they weren't supposed to do. And because of that, judgment of God falls upon the people. And Balaam, his name is now synonymous with what the Midianites did in teaching the people of Israel to go after fornication and idolatry. Jesus, heir of that rich prophetic heritage, heir to the Hebrew Bible, pulls from that historical narrative and says, you know what, that's kind of what's going on here. It's a lot of like what's going on here. Where there are those who are holding to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught to put a stumbling block, taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, there's idolatry, and also practice fornication. So here's a group of Christians, apparently, who have, at least it would seem, some among their number, who are standing up and saying, you know what, it's okay to be friends with the world and engage in sinful activities. It's all good, guys. There's nothing wrong with being friends with Rome. Might go a little better for us if we did. Why not just offer that pinch of incense to those false gods, to the altar of Zeus or to the, to the Roman emperor worship cult? Show your loyalty. Ah, but apparently there were some Christians who recognized, wait a minute, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and uh, oh man, I, I, I don't know about this. What you have here are some hyphenated Christians. Some Christians who put a sin and attached it with the hyphen to Christian. I'm a, some were saying, I'm an idolatrous Christian. It's okay. I'm, I'm an adulterous Christian. It's all good. I'm a fornicating Christian. You realize, you recognize just how obtuse that is, right? How ridiculous is that? Tis the season, I suppose. We're in the midst of this month that has been classified by our culture as Pride Month. And there are some even today who are saying, it's okay to mix what God says not to do with being a Christian. And so you have some who say, well, I'm I'm a gay Christian. I'm a bisexual Christian. I'm a transgender Christian. There are some who are teaching today that it's okay to mix sinful practice with your Christian walk. To that, the Lordship of Jesus demands repentance. Same thing he commands of all sinful practices, brothers and sisters. Repent. You may struggle with these particular urges, but to act on them would be sin. 
And indeed, if you are willing to lay those, those urges and those desires on the altar of Christ and put yourself to death, the same thing he calls everybody to do, the Lord Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is able to help us to overcome those things and to put those things to death if, if, if we are willing. The Lordship of Jesus demands that we abandon these sinful ideas that we can flirt with and engage in gross sin and still even remotely be true Christians. He calls us to be simply Christians. Christians only, not hyphenated Christians. Christians are to be free from idolatry. Whether those idols look like birds, bears, or beasts, or whether it's an idol we've set up in our heart of our own sinful making. And he calls, Christ calls Christians to be free of fornication in all of its various manifestations. Christians are to pursue holiness. We are to put to death sin and the flesh that's in our life by the help of the Spirit who lives within us. We worship the Lord Jesus. And we recognize Him, as we sang a few moments ago, that He is our Creator, that we are made in His image, and that He has a certain ethic for us to maintain and live by. So also, verse 15, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. don't have a bunch of exposition about what exactly this is. We've seen it before. They're also in Ephesus, apparently. But now here they've shown up in Pergamum. Some say these were the people conquerors. Uh, Nicolaitans, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we first were introduced to them. Uh, there's one very well-known brand, Nike. This actually comes from, uh, their name actually comes from this word in the original language. And Nike, that was victory. And so here are people, though, it also could mean conquering. And these are people who conquer other people. They seek the first place positions. They seek to view themselves as more important as they really are and to put others beneath them. They lack humility. At least that's what it seems is going on here. There were some who hold to that idea as well, that doctrine. Therefore, verse 16, repent. These were Christians in Pergamum who were not unfamiliar with compromise. These were people, Christians, who were lax in their commitment. They permitted certain beliefs to come in. They were deluded by perhaps the pagans around them, perhaps even some of their own family members, and apparently these things had come in. They were under perhaps persecution and pressure from outside society, maybe because of certain social obligations. They were feeling the pressure from friends or family or business or, or neighbors, what have you. And so they caved. They compromised. And so Jesus says, you need to repent. To his church, his people, therefore, repent. Get rid of the sin. You have those who belong to these particular groups. You have those who hold to this teaching. And if you do, since you do, repent. Tolerance of these erroneous doctrines doesn't show how loving you are. doesn't show how grace-filled you are. doesn't show how good you are. It shows actually how foolish you are because you have, you have abandoned the Word of Christ. 
You've abandoned what he says to do. And so you need to get out of your midst those people who are seeking to please other people, the people pleasers. And instead, what you need to do is you need to please God with your behavior. You need to please God through your repentance. The Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, they are the only ones that we are obligated to please, no others. If they do not repent, Jesus says, I am coming. I will come to you soon. And notice this, the shift in the pronouns. I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Very interesting. Jesus says, I'm going to come, I'm going to show up at church, <laughs> as it were. I'm going to come to you and my judgment is coming against them, against the heretical teachers, the Balaamites, the Nicolaitans. And if you Christians, if there are those from among you who are found to be in cahoots with these particular Balaamites and Nicolaitans, well, guess what? Judgment's coming to you as well. That's the folly of this. This kind of tolerance was not tolerated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, in a day and age in which we live, the cry for tolerance is louder than ever. The only thing that's not tolerated, of course, is intolerance to others, particularly the intolerance that Christians have towards sin. But even that's flawed, isn't it? If the only thing that's not tolerated is intolerance, the only thing that's not tolerated is intolerance, then even the very intolerance that the tolerant have, by definition, should not be tolerated. I think I got that right. <laughs> yeah. We firmly hold to convictions, not because they're necessarily popular, or even because maybe we feel like it. We hold to them because we can do no other. God, Christ, the Spirit unite, and they are univocal. But this is what they require of the church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this is a familiar formula. We've already seen it a couple of times before, back in verse 7, also verse 11. This is the typical way Jesus is signing off, as it were, in these letters. Well, wait a minute. It's the Spirit who says, or is it Jesus who says, yes? Because the triune God works with singularity, of purpose and in perfect harmony. To the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, your translation may say. Victory in this context, what does it look like? Repentance. Humility before the Lord Jesus Christ to acknowledge His Lordship. Lord, you are right. I don't know the way in which I should go, but I will follow you. Repentance and following Jesus. That's what victory looks like in this context. That's what conquering and overcoming looks like in this context. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Again, this harkens back to Israel during the wanderings and how they were sustained by manna from heaven. But this, this, this manna is, is hidden. 
And yet just as the, there was life-giving nourishment during the wilderness wanderings, so there is this hidden manna, the secret manna from the Lord Jesus to offer us life-sustaining nourishment for our souls. Even though like Antimus, we may pay the ultimate price with our lives. Hidden manna. But also, I will give him a white stone. And there's a bit of historical context here. There are interpretations that vary, but it seems like what's going on here is in court, up there in Asia Minor, in Pergamum, in court, stones would be cast for a guilty verdict or a not guilty verdict. A black stone would be given for the guilty verdict. The white stone would be given for a not guilty verdict. And so here is Jesus saying, if you overcome, that is, if you repent and follow me, I'll give you this white stone, which means you're not guilty. If not, guilty. That's all that remains is the judgment that comes with that guilty verdict. And also a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Interesting. This new name business. What is it? That's what we want to know, right? What is it? Not really sure. But I do know this. A new name? That comes with a new status. It comes with a new relationship, or, or shall we say a renewed relationship. You're no longer that hyphenated Christian. You're no longer a Balaamite or a Nicolaitan. You are, once again, simply Christian. Christ follower. There may be a connection to 3 and verse 12. The name of the city of God. My own new name, but we'll cover that when we get there. In the meantime, you hear the voice of your Lord. Here is what Jesus said to a church in the first century. He had something against them. And right now, as we go to God in prayer, I want you to examine your soul. Look into your heart of hearts and, and see, is there anything, anything, that is not in keeping with what Christ would have me to be and to do. Let us pray. Indeed, Lord, even as we search our hearts right now, we know that you search our hearts and you know. Lord God, reveal these things to us. Show us where we fall short of your glory. We want to be free from all sin, iniquity, transgressions. So we pray, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see clearly. Lord God, as we seek to live for you in a culture, in a society, which is increasingly secular, we pray that we would not make compromises, but that we would stand firm in your word, no matter the cost. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.